0: Good morning friends, my name's Kate. If we haven't met before, we're gonna read, as Ben said, from One Kings chapter 21. That's on page 559. If you've got a red Bible, or on your phone, or on the screen behind me. One Kings chapter twenty-one. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, Let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it's close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it's worth. But Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, "'I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors.' He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, "'Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat?' He answered her, "'Because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, "'Sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, "'I will give you another vineyard in its place.' But he said, "'I will not give you my vineyard.' Jezebel, his wife, said, Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters, she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people but seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and the king, then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city did as Jezebel directed in the letters she had written to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. So they took him outside the city and they stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite that he refused to sell to you. He is no longer alive but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where the dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up yours. Yes, yours. Ahab said to Elijah, So you have found me, my enemy. I have found you, he answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. He says, I am going to bring disaster on you. I will wipe out your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and that of Bashar, son of Ahijah, because you have aroused my anger and caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, Dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds will feed on those who die in the country. Then there was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols, like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster on in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: well good morning everyone and welcome Uh, my name is Jack Uh, if we haven't met It's great to have you with us, Uh, and we're going to be continuing along our little adventure uh, in 1 Kings, particularly as we look at the character uh, of Elijah, Uh, and I hope that you've been enjoying it uh, as we've been getting to a somewhat slightly obscure part of God's Word, uh, and yet being able to see that this part of God's Word has a huge amount to say to us, Uh, but actually more than that, it's got a huge amount to say about Jesus, Uh, And so if you uh, are coming partway through this series, this is the fourth of five, uh, and we've been following this character of Elijah, our protagonist, the good guy, as he confronts the king of Israel, Ahab, the antagonist, the bad guy, who is leading Israel astray. Uh, And we've had three scenes uh, already. Uh, We've seen the drought, where the true word of the Lord brings life to those who need it, And we saw how it is that Jesus himself is the true word who brings life. Then, scene number two, we have the great confrontation between Baal and God, where God turns the hearts of his people back to himself. Uh, And we see this ultimately, the confrontation of evil on the cross, where Jesus is the sacrifice that turns the hearts of his people back. And then last week, we saw this incredible mountaintop vision where God meets Elijah where he is, a broken and depressed Elijah, having been hunted by Jezebel, Ahab's wife. God meets Elijah, brings him to Mount Sinai, and confronts him, and comforts him rather, by showing Elijah that plan A is still working. And we saw how this is then mimicked in the transfiguration in the Gospels. And then we saw that God's plan A has been accomplished, by Jesus at the cross. At the cross, plan A is finished. It is done. And that is such a wonderful relief in the busyness of this world. We don't need to be the saviour of this world. A job's already been taken. We don't need to finish God's plan for us. But the question that we're left with is, well, why then do we act? If the plan is accomplished, if everything is finished, Are we supposed to just sit back and twiddle our thumbs? And if we are to act, what should that look like? What should the shape of that be? We live in a world where seemingly everyone is an activist, where politics has taken an outsized role in our lives. And so these questions of how we are to act are incredibly important. Because as Christians, we want to be making sure that we do act in the right way. How do we do that? How do we honour Jesus? How do we honour God as we interact with the society around us? There's a whole stack of questions. On what basis do we make decisions? Does being a Christian mean I have to align myself to a specific political party or a specific cause? We can push into the details on all of these things. But today, these are the questions that we're going to be looking at as we focus in on our antagonist, Ahab, And we try and understand this scene from 1 Kings 21. So as we begin, let me pray uh, for us now. Father, we want to thank you so much for your word. We want to thank you that you have spoken to us through your word, that you have given us Jesus. Uh, And this morning, as we consider justice and what it means to act in this world, Father, I pray that you'll be helping all of us uh, to grapple with the complexities of this passage, to feel the injustice in this passage, but to also see and love the mercy of God that is on view in this passage. And in doing so, Father, I pray that all of us, uh, as we go out from here today, would be able to reflect the heart of our God and the heart of Jesus and the way that Jesus has acted towards us uh, and so, Father, help us to be caught again with that vision of just how great your Son Jesus is and what he has done for us. Amen. Well, if you've got your Bibles there, keep them open. I'll have the verses up on the screen as well. Uh, and we're jumping into this story, 1 Kings 21. And verse 1 gives us the setting and really sets up the story. Verse 1. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. So we find out a few things straight away. The author is recording an incident. That is, this is going to be a story that gives us an insight into Ahab's reign as king. And it's representative of who he was and how he operated. And we're introduced to the main characters. We have Naboth, uh, who is from Jezreel, which is the one up there on the right. Uh, And Ahab, uh, who is the king of Samaria. Uh, Jezreel is probably his summer palace, uh, which is why he's up there. But importantly, Jezreel is not in the tribe of Manasseh. So Ahab is from Manasseh, Jezreel uh, is in the tribe of Issachar. We're going to come back to that because that will be important. Uh, In fact, we've actually been to Jezreel before. This is where Jezebel was when she issued the death notice for Elijah in last week's talk. And already there are some odd things going on. What's the problem? Well, Ahab wants Naboth's vineyard. And on the face of it, this seems quite normal. Ahab has a palace. He wants to expand. And so he goes to the bloke living next door, Naboth, and offers an exchange. You give me your vineyard, and I'll give you a better one somewhere else. That seems to be quite a reasonable request. But Naboth says no. And his words suggest that there is something more going on here. Verse 3. But Naboth replied... The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So there are a few clues in here that the author has given us that help us understand what's going on. As we saw on the map, Jezreel is not part of Samaria, so it's not really Ahab's right to take it. He also wants a vegetable garden. Now that's an exceptionally mundane thing, and I think that's deliberate. It's kind of like you looking at your neighbor's house and saying, I really want some more lawn. Why don't you give me your lawn? You can have some lawn somewhere else. But most importantly, it's Naboth's reply that gives us the full picture. Naboth says he won't give it up because it's the inheritance of his ancestors. And to understand this, we really need to understand the way that land works in ancient Israel. In Australia, We buy and sell land and houses all the time. It doesn't really mean much to us. But for the Israelites, the land meant everything. Why? Because God had given it to them. This was not something you just got rid of. Actually, our First Nations people, they have a much better understanding of this than us. There is a spiritual connection between the people and the land. Numbers 36 7 sums up the command that Naboth was following and Naboth and Ahab was ignoring. Numbers 36 7 No inheritance in Israel is to pass from one tribe to another, for every Israelite shall keep the tribal inheritance of their ancestors. You see, this wasn't just about money. God had given Naboth that bit of land. And Ahab wasn't from his tribe. So even though the offer might have been very good, in fact reasonable, God himself had clearly said no. And Naboth was a good man. He followed God. And even when the king came and put pressure on him, he refused. Naboth would follow God no matter what the consequences were. This is courage, by the way. Courage is holding firm to your convictions and virtues when they are under attack. And Naboth is a courageous man. And he will not bend when given a choice between God and earthly pressure. And then from this point on, verses 4 to 16, what we get is essentially a case study in systemic injustice and the abuse of power. And the picture that is painted is one that is all too familiar to us. While the context is different, the dynamics that are at play are still the same today. This is humans abusing power. Let's look at the steps that unfold as this occurs. Step one, the person in charge neglects his duty. Ahab sulks. You're supposed to think of a child at this point in the narrative. The word sulk or "sullen" is actually mentioned three times in two verses there. He's having a temper tantrum. But more than that, he's manipulating the situation to get his own way. He's expecting someone to act and to find a solution for him. And so step two Somebody else steps into the leadership vacuum. And that is our character Jezebel. Jezebel now enters the scene. Verse 7 Jezebel, his wife, said, Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat, cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Jezebel takes over. And she will now act as king where Ahab isn't. And she does. She writes orders literally pretending to be Ahab. And she comes up with a plan. And it is a brutal and efficient plan. Get two men to make false accusations against Naboth. In the law of the time, you needed two witnesses to prove something. That's why it's two of them. And then you get the elders and nobles of the town to execute him. Done. But notice something else. Jezebel is keeping herself at arm's length. Ahab here has plausible deniability as he technically hasn't requested this. And Jezebel is just writing letters. As long as the elders and the nobles don't say anything, there is nothing to connect her and Ahab to the crime. And so... Point three, others in leadership don't display courage. We saw Naboth display courage. While his convictions were under attack, he stands firm. And Naboth could still be saved at this point. If the elders and nobles just displayed courage, if they realized that what they have been asked to do is immoral, that it's wrong, that it's unjust, they could have refused but they don't. In fact, verses 8 to 10 details Jezebel's orders. And then, I'm not sure if you saw as we went through, verses 11 and 13 are almost exactly the same. The elders are literally mimicking Jezebel's orders, and they follow the order to the detail. Pick up the story in verse 13b. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, that he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive, but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, without asking any questions, he gets up goes and takes possession of Naboth's vineyard. Five times, did you see it? Five times the author emphasises the word death. Naboth has died. An innocent man has died because a corrupt king wanted a vegetable patch. And it's a textbook case of how systemic abuse occurs. The leader ignores his duties turns a blind eye to the methods as long as the outcomes are what he desires. Pressure is exerted through the system and people lacking courage simply do as they're told because protecting their job or their reputation is more important than what is right in the eyes of the Lord. And it should have been the perfect crime. That would have been the end of it. There was nothing here connecting Ahab and Jezebel with Naboth. There was no iPhones recording a video to prove that Naboth hadn't actually said those things. Except, of course, for one key thing. One thing that Ahab and Jezebel both forgot, but the one thing that Naboth knew God was watching. God was watching everything, and God hates injustice. And so God acts. And that is why this story doesn't end in verse 16, but it continues on to verse 17 with words that should have sent dread down Ahab's spine. Verse 17, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. We've seen previously that the word of the Lord brings life, but this time it is different. The word of the Lord this time brings judgment. Read with me from verse 18. God says to Elijah, Go down and meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, This is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, This is what the Lord says, In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. This is justice. Because Ahab has corruptly killed a man, so God will take Ahab's life away. But this hammer blow of justice keeps falling because it's not just that Ahab has done something wrong. No, he is the king of Israel. His evil has encouraged and corrupted the whole system. He has caused the elders and nobles to sin. He has created the circumstances for Jezebel to sin. And God is very clear. Ahab might think that he has plausible deniability, but God sees through it. He knows the truth. Ahab is responsible. And so 20b continues, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, he says, I am going to bring disaster on you. I will wipe out your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male heir in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and that of Baasha, son of Ahijah, because you have aroused my anger and have caused Israel to sin. You see, Ahab is the king, and so he takes special responsibility. He was supposed to uphold justice, to uphold God's laws, but he deliberately disobeyed. And so evil flourished, injustice was everywhere, and so God acted. And in case you're just thinking, well, maybe that's a little bit harsh, well, the author puts in a reminder in verse 25. This is not an isolated incident. This incident is representative of who Ahab was and how he acted. Verse 25, there was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. Urged on by Jezebel, his wife, he behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. And this is a massive thing for us to try and understand about God. You see, our God is a God of justice. This is part of who he is. It is in his character. And when he acts, he always acts out of his character. And God hates injustice. If you look out around at the world and you're frustrated when you see people being exploited, when you see disadvantage, when you see the powerful people in the world abusing those under them in order to gain more power, more wealth, more publicity, well, that's a good thing. Because when we feel the injustice of this world, we are reflecting the heart of God. Injustice comes from sin, and sin is a rejection of God. As Christians, then, we should be the first to stand up for the vulnerable, for the abused, for the outcast, for the bullied, for the disadvantaged. Because as we are conformed to the image of Jesus... So we will reflect God's heart for justice. But it's important to say something else as well. Because there are going to be some people here who haven't just seen injustice, they have lived injustice. You have been on the receiving end of injustice. People who have experienced what it is to live in a system that is against them or that have experienced abuse or exploitation. Now, if that's you, then I want you to hear the great comfort in this story for you. God has seen everything. And what he has seen breaks his heart. But the promise here in 1 Kings 21 is that he will act. Even if human institutions fail you, God's justice never fails, and it will come. Maybe not in this world completely, but it will come absolutely and completely when Jesus returns a second time. Now, if this was the end of the story, we could just kind of wrap up here, and that would be good. But there's a little sting in the end of this story in the tale of this story and it's an unusual sting because this is a story about justice about how God hates injustice and that he will punish those who perpetuate evil and this can and should be a great comfort to us Ahab did horrible things God promises to bring justice except that this story appears to cut its own legs out from under itself Because what happens in verse 27? When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. Do you hear what's being said here? After all of this, it turns out that Ahab never has to face justice for what he did to Naboth. All he had to do is say sorry, and it all went away. No punishment, no discipline. Ahab rejects God and gets away scot-free. Naboth follows God and ends up dead, and none of his murderers are held accountable. And it raises something massively important, because this should make you feel deeply uncomfortable. The opposite of justice is mercy. We love to talk about justice, and we also love to talk about mercy. God is just, God is merciful. But actually, when you think about it, the two contradict each other. Mercy is when you ignore the consequences of justice. Mercy is, by definition, unjust. If I were to take Ben's carnival out for a spin, I get a bit reckless. I crash it into a pole because I'm being a bit stupid. Justice would be for me to pay for all the damages, to get it uh, repaired and and restored. But if Ben were to show me mercy, he would say, don't worry, I'll get it and repaired and restored myself. He would say, I will take the consequences of your sin and I will bear the cost myself. In this story... We see both the justice of God and the mercy of God side by side. And the result is uncomfortable. Not just uncomfortable, it's kind of disturbing. So how do we deal with it? Well, verses 27 and 29 shows actually, well, gives us a few clues that the Bible is not ignoring this. This tension between justice and mercy is not a bug It's actually a feature of what's going on. In 27 and 29, we get one of the clues. Firstly, while Ahab repents of this action, we also find out that he commits more atrocities. And actually, in the rest of 1 Kings 22, we find out that he doesn't repent of these things. And his death is, in fact, punishment for the things that he has done. So we get that in 1 Kings 22. So you can read about that there. But secondly, and more importantly... The thing to notice is that the justice doesn't just disappear. The consequences don't just disappear. What happens in this story is those consequences are simply passed down one generation to his son. If God just snapped his fingers and those consequences disappeared, that would be unjust. But the punishment remains, but it is put on the son's shoulders. It is Ahab's son who will bear the punishment for the sins of the king of Israel. Now you might say at this point, but isn't that unfair on the son? Well, potentially, but again, we actually get the story of the son in 2 Kings 1 and what happens to him. And what we see is that Ahaziah also rejects God and follows idols like his father. He is himself unjust. And I take it that if the son had repented... And followed Jesus or followed Yahweh, that punishment would have just shifted down another generation. Because this is making a massively important point: you can always turn to God for mercy. But actually, we get the real answer when we read the Bible as a whole. In fact, we've been doing this. We've been going through this series. We've seen that when we read the Old Testament, we need to apply the Old Testament. To Jesus and then to us we don't go straight from the Old Testament to us and we do this because Jesus repeatedly tells us that is how you were supposed to read the Old Testament and so when we re- move from the Old Testament ju- to Jesus we begin to see how that tension between justice and mercy is resolved because the tension between God's justice and mercy is never actually resolved in the Old Testament. In fact, it should be pushing us forward to what is to come. For those who are into music, this tension is like an unresolved chord throughout the whole Old Testament waiting to be resolved in the new. It's a cliffhanger at the end of the episode before the season finale. Justice and mercy stand at odds with each other until the moment, till the glorious revelation where that mystery is revealed. The moment where both justice and mercy come together at the very centre and climax of the Christian story. Because it is only at the cross of Jesus Christ that we can understand how these two things fit together. Because Jesus is the true Son, who took the punishment of the king of Israel on his shoulders. But more than that, at the cross, Jesus stood in the place of humanity. The punishment for the sins of everyone who had gone before and everyone who would come after him, including you and me, it was placed on his shoulders. God is only ever just, and the consequences of sin is death. And so the good and righteous requirements of justice were fulfilled in the death of the innocent Son of God. It was at this moment where we see the justice of God on full display as the Son died. But it was also at this this moment that God's mercy is also on view. Because the innocent Son of God stood in our, our place in absorbing that justice into himself, he showed us mercy. He allowed our sins to be forgiven. Paul the Apostle writes in Romans 5.8 that at this moment, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is only in Jesus that the justice and mercy in view in 1 Kings 21 can fully resolve themselves. So what does this mean for us? Well, the question we had at the start was, on what basis do we act in this world? We saw yesterday that Jesus, sorry, we saw last week that Jesus has accomplished everything on the cross We don't need to be the saviour of the world. That job is taken. But that doesn't mean that we just sit here idly twiddling our thumbs. We act out of what has been given to us. As Christians, we are people of the cross. We don't act because we're trying to make ourselves right with God, because we are the ones who need to secure justice. We act because we have already been made right with God. And we reflect the heart of God to the world around us. And that means that we are to be both people of justice and of mercy. And that will look odd to those around us. It's one of the ways that we are different in this world. Tim Keller puts it like this. Recently in a tweet he said this. In a particular culture... Christianity should look neither just extreme nor just moderate. It should look like a combination of elements that by the culture's logic should not be combined, but by the logic of Trinitarian creation and redemption, you could say mercy and justice at that point, they should be. Let me read that out for you again. In particular culture, Christianity should look neither just extreme nor just moderate, It should look like a combination of elements that by the culture's logic should not be combined, but by the logic of Trinitarian creation and redemption should be. Our world struggles to put justice and mercy together. It's a tension that continues to exist. But as Christians, the great joy is that we can because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. We live in light of the cross. So what does this look like? Well, as Christians, we should be the first to look for justice and to stand up against injustice. We are on the side of the oppressed, the vulnerable. Our churches, our homes need to be safe spaces for all who are broken, who have been abused, who need the healing of Jesus. How do we express that as a church? And yet, as Christians we should also be the first to offer forgiveness to those who have perpetrated injustice, to show mercy to those the world has condemned because this is how Jesus has acted towards us. So how do we express that as a church? And holding those two positions will look impossible to the world around us. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that Christians can't have differences of opinion on how this all works out. But I think one of the ways that we're able to show this and demonstrate this is our ability to actually have these conversations because we share a trust in the accomplished plan of God and a shared desire to demonstrate the heart of God to this world. Actually, these things are incredibly important things to be wrestling with. How do we live out the justice and mercy that have been shown us at the cross. And so as we finish as Christians, we do not fit neatly into the categories that our world uses. We are neither on the left nor the right, we are neither progressive nor conservative. We do not need to choose between mercy and justice. We are fundamentally people of the cross. We are confident that Christ has accomplished everything and we act in this world out of a desire to reflect both the justice and mercy shown to us at the cross. We act so that we can show others the heart of God, the heart of the God that, that has been shown to us in Jesus. We're going to finish there, but let me just pray for us uh, as we conclude. Father, we want to thank you so much for Jesus. We want to thank you for the fact that you are a god of justice and a god of mercy we thank you for the way that we're able to see those two things so clearly in 1 kings 21 we see that you are a god of justice you don't shirk from that responsibility you see injustice and you have and you will act but we thank you father that you have not left it there but that you are also a god of mercy that you have shown mercy to us people who were sinners And you have saved us and we thank you that the cross is where those two things meet where your justice and your mercy come together in order to save us and father i pray for all of us as individuals as we go out into the world and i pray for us as a church here at barney's that we would reflect this in our lives in ways that are odd and different to the world around us as we hold together both justice and mercy in the way that we treat others and love our world And so, Father, as we reflect this in our lives, as we act in this world, we pray that through us people would see Jesus, would see how great he is, and turn, repent, and follow him. And we pray all of this in your Son's name. Amen.